Multiple Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert, not the Bruce, Brocamp, personal finance expert <laughs> here at The Motley Fool. Hey, bro, how you doing? <laughs> not sure exactly what that means, but I'm doing great, Allison. How are you? I'm good. Well, this week, Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer, Andy Cross, gives his take on yet another exceptional year for stocks, and we answer a question about when to claim Social Security. If it'll even still be around by the time you retire. Oh, womp womp. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Full Answers. Chances are, as an Answers listener, you're probably already much better than the average bear when it comes to budgeting. I mean, you could be listening to a murder podcast right now, but you'll listen to us talk about required minimum distributions for the 11 billionth time. RMDs, am I right, bro? Can't get enough of them, I tell you. Ah, I'd rather be listening to a murder podcast. But anyway, the point is, you're probably on top of the concept of budgeting. But have you tried values-based budgeting? It's a way to be more deliberate with your spending so you get the maximum psychological reward. I first heard about it from Joel O'Leary. He's over at Budgets Are Sexy, and he also blogs over at 5amjoel.com. Joel, along with his wife, were inspired to reevaluate their spending after reading Smart Couples Finish Rich. Values-based budgeting sounds simple enough. Determine what you value and then budget your spending so that you're using your money on things that are truly fulfilling for you personally. You know what? It's probably better if I just have Joel explain it to you. I've always been a good budgeter with my wife and saving and stuff like that. So nothing was ever wrong. However, um, maybe like three or four years ago, we started to um, study personal finance a bit more. And we noticed two big things. Number one is most people spend a ton of money on things that really don't actually provide them a lot of joy. Money seems to just slip away. And a lot of people don't even budget at all. Uh, the other thing is when they do spend money on things that they enjoy, uh, they, they feel really guilty about it. You know, everything that they spend in their budget, there's this guilt tied to it. So my wife and I wanted to change that. We didn't want to do those two things. So I want to feel good about the money that I'm spending. I want to feel good about every dollar that I've got is going somewhere that's actually providing value to my life. So that's when I sort of came up with the, the concept and started researching and yeah, sort of found value-based budgeting from there. So Joel and his wife sat down, pondered what they value personally and compared notes. But if you ask someone what they value, they'll say generic stuff like honesty, hard work, tacos. But how do you clearly define and almost rank order your own values? This is the really hard part. And I think this is why people mostly don't do it. You have to do some soul searching. You have to do some exercises, uh, ask yourself some deep questions, and then go a step further and ask why. Uh, for my wife and I, I read this awesome book called Smart Couples Finish Rich. It's by David Buck. So here are a couple of questions that you can ask of yourself that'll, that'll pull out your values. Uh, one is, who do you admire most in this world? And then why do you admire them? And maybe if you're picturing your 70-year-old self, like what does that person value most in this world? And what are some of their proudest memories? What are some of your proudest moments? And, and why do you feel so proud? Pull out these words, like for me, something would be like community. That's a really big value for me. I'm going to spend time with people. I like being face-to-face -face with them. I like sharing meals together. So those are the types of words that we started to identify and then compare. Now here's an important part for anyone with a financial partner. How do you find alignment? 
it wasn't a complete mismatch. It was more just like some things were a bit of a higher priority to me versus my wife. And I can give you an example. Like one of them was giving for me. I, I like giving stuff. If it was me, if it was up to me, I'd give away the farm. I love giving away that money. Um, I always grew up giving to church, tithing, stuff like that. Uh, for my wife, she really only started earning a lot of money after college. And she's a teacher. Her daytime job is giving herself. But um, she would never fathom like gifting $10,000 in a year. It just wasn't, you know, ever part of her budget. So for me, it was. And like, how do we compromise on that? Uh, so here's what we did. One was uh, I started volunteering on Fridays. And it was a way that I could justify reducing our giving budget like giving, instead of giving money away, I could actually do hands-on volunteer. And my wife, we, she really valued community as well, which is kind of like contributing and giving. So we increased our food and alcohol budget so that we could host more parties and share our money and stuff with our friends. So that was like, it wasn't really a mismatch of our values. It's more about these questions bring up a discussion of how you want to spend your money in life so that you can both get something out of your budget. And if you base your budget on someone else's values, you're not going to be happy. So it's really important that you and your partner contribute both to this values-based budget. Values-based budgeting isn't about spending less. It's about getting more value emotionally and psychologically from your money. And sometimes that means spending more in some categories. Value-based budgeting, you've got to have a little bit of a mindset shift. I think most people go into budgeting with the sole goal of reducing how much they spend in each category. But value-based budgeting isn't about just reducing costs. It's about cutting money in the areas that provide no value and increasing in the areas that do provide value. So uh, what I was surprised is some of these categories at the end, they came out with a healthier budget and I feel great about it versus feeling bad and always trying to spend less. Bro, how about you? Picture it, the 70 year old you. What are the most important things in old bro's life? <laughs> well, it's funny you ask that question because my wife and I just celebrated our 22-year anniversary uh, way back in 2000. Actually, my wife worked at The Fool, too. We wrote an article about a financial manifesto for couples, and we laid out our financial goals. And as we were sitting around this weekend, we realized we kind of hit all of them. Our goals were to have kids. Well, we had two, adopted one, buy a house, got that. My wife get her PhD. She had to put it on hold, but just this summer, she got her PhD. So I'm now married to Dr. Brokamp. Uh, and as long as everything goes according to plan, our retirement plan is safe. So we were thinking like, what's next? What are we going to do for the next 10 years, 20 years? What are our next financial goals? And I think what it came down to for us is, what are we going to do to give back? We want to do more with our financial resources, resources to help people, but also with our time. I don't see myself ever being fully retired. I don't know what I would do with myself. So we both sort of agreed on that volunteer work and devoting some of our money towards that work will be a big part of what our 70s and 80s are going to look like. All right. So that's our vision. What about you, Allison? Well, I'm obviously not as aged as you are, bro. And I still have some of those financial goals to still tackle. Uh, but I mean, it's tough for me because I, I want to be a part of a community that's accomplishing good things, which I feel like I am just being an employee of The Motley Fool. Uh, so yeah, 
I travel. I want to travel. I want to do something creative. I want to feel valuable. I don't want to like, I just don't want to, I don't want to golf all day. And that's fine if that's what you want to do. I don't know. It's a tough question. See, bro, it's hard. Oh, all right. Well, if you're struggling like me to figure out what you even basically value in life outside of tacos, uh, you can read Joel's article over at Budgets Are Sexy. And again, he also blogs over at 5amjoel.com. I've got just about everything I need to make this life I lead an enjoyable thing. I've got bluebirds and poses and robins and roses, all kinds of flowers that bloom. So far, it's turning out to be another good year for investors. As of September 10th, the S&P 500 has returned 20% in 2021. And the good returns have come with little turmoil. The largest pullback so far this year has been 4%. And there have been just three trading days when the S&P 500 was down 2% or more. In fact, since 2010, the S&P 500 has lost money in just one calendar year, and that was a modest 4.4% decline in 2018. Of course, the market plummeted more than 30% in the spring of last year during the pandemic panic, but it rebounded and managed to earn 18% for all of 2020, which is really just remarkable. So does this string of exceptional returns mean we're in a bubble, or will this golden age of investing continue? Here to offer his take is Andy Cross, the Chief Investment Officer here at The Motley Fool, and the sixth longest-serving employee at the company, coming up on 25 years of foolishness. Andy, welcome back to Motley Fool Answers. Hey, thanks, bro. Thanks for having me. It's always great to be back. So I laid out some stats about how good times have been. So let's start with asking, what are your general thoughts about investing nowadays? Well, it has been. It's been an incredible rebound after just a draconian drop in 2020 when COVID started and the markets fell 35% or so, um, You know, almost literally overnight. You don't see that. And then very much like Robert, if you bounce uh, those who you know play that bouncy ball game at the beach or on a trampoline, you bounce a ball at a very high angle, it's going to return at a very high angle. And that's what we saw in the markets and they came roaring back. I think the past few months, we've seen this extraordinary continued movement into markets for lots of different reasons. Um, and, and really driving into the big parts of the market. When I'm talking about the market, I'm talking about the S&P 500, as I know that uh, that's mostly what you refer to as well, which is driven a lot by large cap technology stocks, which have had just an, a, a wonderful run here in the last um, few months, really, for, for very long, but, but have really driven the market. Because, Robert, if you look at the S&P 500 equal weighted index, it's actually outperformed the general market over the last year. And that's mostly because earlier in the year, a lot of the cyclical stocks had a really nice performance, and those have leveled off, and the technology stocks have kind of carried the day higher. So that's still slightly beating the market um, from the beginning of the year. So you've seen the markets have this really nice, robust uh, performance based on growth expectations and low interest rates, and the fact that there are so few alternatives out there. You just look at bond yields, you look at even global equities for the most part. The U.S. has been the place to invest in capital. Um, and you've seen a lot of people rush into the markets, individuals, um, lots of uh, institutions continue to plow money in the market. So that's a little bit of background of what I'm seeing. Now, going forward, you know, historically, you look at data uh, of the market's performance over the, over the short periods, and they are really driven by valuations. And valuations are really at very high levels relative to earnings, relative to sales growth, relative to so many metrics, dividends, and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, going forward, 
Um, that's going to be a big driver, especially as we think about the macro indicators with COVID and with interest rates. And so you're going to see some more volatility. It's, we, Robert, as you said, to kick off the show, it's been this exceptionally calm period, and I don't expect that to stick around. We will see more ramped up volatility over the next six months, and investors have to be ready for that. Longer term, over the next, say, five years, which is the perspective I like to take as an investor, I still see stocks as, as, as opportunities, but we just can't expect the same kind of similar returns we've seen over the last five years. Yeah, to put some numbers on the what you said about valuation and the, the cyclically adjusted PE ratio, otherwise known as the CAPE, at 38, second highest reading of all time, highest being 44 during the peak of the dot-com bubble, yielding the S&P 500 1.3%, lowest it's ever been, except again during the dot-com days. Uh, and then there's the market cap to GDP ratio, also known as the Buffett indicator, since Warren Buffett said in 2001 that it's, quote, probably the best single measure of where valuations stand at any given moment, end quote. And it's currently at an all-time high. So we're at these high valuations. Market keeps going up. Market's been va- considered highly valued for a few years. Mm-hmm. So I can understand why some people ask, does valuation really even matter anymore? Yeah, it still matters, um, Robert. I think, and and again, if you look over for for stocks in general over shorter periods of time, valuation really is a is a big driver. Price to earnings multiple, price to sales, all those valuation metrics that you that that we like to look at over shorter periods that tends to to matter much more, along with momentum. Um, is, are also big drivers and factors. Um, and then perhaps exogenous factors like what we saw in COVID um, or, or um, other other experiences that we've seen over the last 25 years of investing here at The Motley Fool. Um, longer period of time, though, Robert, it really comes down to sales and earnings growth is a continued big driver. By the way, interest rates obviously being so low has been a big driver because that's plowed money into stocks looking for returns because bond yields are so low at this point. So valuations matter in the short period, longer period is much more around sales and earnings growth. And if you look at the earnings growth for the S&P 500 over the last year or so, you've just seen this exceptional growth rebounding off the terrible 2020 period we had. And so this year, this quarter, sorry, the third quarter and the fourth quarter, you're still going to see probably 20% earnings growth in the S&P 500 stocks. Um, and so, with those earning growth, that's a lot of the excitement. Now, I think what we're seeing is that there's some questions about the sustainability of that going into 2022. There's questions about we're not having as many surprises. Investors love surprises, especially momentum traders. They love surprises when companies or the markets tend to outperform expectations. You see that juice a lot of stock returns at, at various points. We're starting to see those those surprises start to lessen. This the the Citigroup economic surprise indicator is at an, at, at a at a two year low or so, um, and been steadily going down. So we're not seeing as many surprises coming up. And so I think some some investors are starting to get a little bit nervous about that, as 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 rightly so. So again, I think valuations do matter. For the equity returns going forward, you know the earnings, the market sells at a twenty times earnings multiple, give or take, you know, a point or two, and that from an earnings yield, if you reverse that to compare it against bond yields, you know, that's about a four four and a half percent yield, Robert. So it's not, it's not that's that's okay historically. That's still a little bit more expensive, but again, relative to uh, you know one point three percentage yield on a, on a on a 10-year treasury note, it's, it, it trumps that. So, from the again, from the comparison perspective, stocks still seem relatively cheap. It's just that we're just not going to see the calm markets that we've seen 
from a market perspective, like we've seen since the rebound, because stocks really have pretty much for the most part gone straight up. And we just won't see that over the next six to 12 months. We're going to see a lot more volatility into the markets. Yeah. Adding to what you said earlier in terms of people keeping their expectations lower, um, Aswath the Mortar and the professor from NYU said on CNBC last week that people should expect that the S&P 500 to turn 6% a year on average over the next decade. Uh, and that gets back to valuation, but also er- earnings yield. But even that, right? Even if you only earn 6%, that's still better than one you're going to get from cash or bonds over the next decade, which is why people feel like they just kind of have to stick with stocks. Yeah, yeah. And that those returns, and if we get 6%, actually, that's probably even... I was at 6% maybe um, a couple months ago. So that's actually, I think, would be would, would be pretty decent. Of course, inflation is going to start picking up. So the the return on even that return from, from bonds, although st- from stocks, sorry, stocks... Tend to outperform during during inflationary periods because they have they have businesses that have more pricing power certainly than more than bonds that have that fixed coupon. Um, so uh, if we get that that kind of return, it's going to come with a lot more volatility than maybe perhaps in bonds and obviously certainly more than cash. But the return is definitely going to still be higher. And you know from the from the the TINA acronym, there is no alternative. That's what a lot of people are seeing in the markets. And re- imagine even just retirees, whether it's in dividend stocks or just markets being able to comp- can, can compete with with inflation expectations, which are creeping up, and rightly so. Again, we're starting to see that show up in in our conference calls and our in, in the numbers. And business is talking a lot more about rising rising costs. I was listening to reading the Sharon Williams conference call from a little bit ago. Um, the, the 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 paint manufacturer and um, and, and retailer, and they were just talking about having to offset costs. They're just seeing more and more cost inputs, and how they are going to start to offset that with either price increases, and that's going to start filtering through already has to the consumer. So we're going to see those inflation expectations start to creep up again. Worse for bond returns. Uh, stocks have the ability to maybe ride that out a little bit more. So again, what does that mean for valuations that start to put the market higher? Because again, there is no other alternative. Now, I think we will start seeing international markets starting to be more attractive to investors. We already have seen a little bit of that. So there's, a, there's an international bent to this to be able to to start to diversify um, your portfolio into some global um, either equities or or funds that maybe you, you um, didn't look at before because the U.S. was so attractive um, from the rebound from, from COVID. So we talked about cash and bonds. And that's one way to manage risks, taking some chips off the table, so to speak. Um, but you can also manage risk within your stock portfolio, for example, by owning enough stocks. And in the past, Fool didn't really have an official take on that. You know, Some of our services recommended at least 15 stocks, but it wasn't really like a, a key foolish principle. However, lately, we've upped that number to 25, and we're making more of an effort to promote that as a minimum number. What's been behind that push? Well, a lot of it's data, Robert. So again, thinking about five-year periods, which is what we want investors to really think about. When we say investors, we're talking about those who, who are investing in the markets, looking to build wealth over long-term periods, um, whether it's in a in a taxable account where those 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 gains can can grow uh, relatively tax deferred because you're not churning the account or even a taxable account thinking long term perspective because businesses um, take well, sometimes take a, a long time for the the market to to show up in the in the value of that business but looking at our data historically as we are looking at our stock advisor data which is our longest serving 
uh, service started by Tom and David back in 2002. So it's been around for many, many years. We looked at the historical data, those recommendations, and we found that the, the stocks that you held, more stocks you held and for longer periods of time, your likelihood historically of making money, a return on your investment um, is quite high. Now, that's not too surprising, Robert, because I think as, as, as you and, uh, and you know, and we've talked about before, that if you look at the five-year periods or even longer of the S&P 500, again, going over rolling periods, rolling monthly periods of five years, the S&P 500 has made um, money 87.5% of the time. So that still means there's you know 12.5% of the time it didn't make money. So you didn't have a return. And of course, if you push that out to 10 years, that number drops to like 6% of the time you don't make money. If you go over longer periods, 15 and 20 years, it's almost 100% of the time historically you've made money in, in stocks. So again, the longer period, the likelihood of making money. So that's been a big driver. And we look at our stock advisor date and we think it's a little bit better by investing in the stocks that we've had in the stock advisors to make money. So that's been a big realization for us and just an encouraging of talking to our members and investors that, listen, if you're looking to generate a return in investing and think about it from a business-focused perspective, building out a portfolio of 25 stocks, not 500, just even just 25 stocks, aim to get there, 25 stocks and hold for five years, your likelihood of making money on those stocks is quite good. Uh, over the past decade plus, uh, almost all types of stocks have done well, but some types have definitely done much better, right? So U.S. over international, as you mentioned earlier, growth over value, to a lesser extent, large over small. Um, for the past few years, many folks, myself included, have said, well, this can't continue, but it still does. There was a brief period towards the end of last year and the beginning of this year where it changed, but over the last few months, it's kind of gone back to the way it was. Do you pay much attention to such things or are you focused just on finding great companies and you don't worry too much about these asset class trends? Yeah, it's mostly mostly the latter, Robert. I'm mostly focused on those those great businesses around the globe. It doesn't just have to be in US and whether they're small cap or large cap. I'm trying to find those businesses, those those exceptional businesses run by 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 um, smart principled people, preferably with decent ownership stakes, but but businesses that can that can stand the test of time, um, if I am going to invest in them for say five years, that their business they're offering solutions, they're in markets that are attract growing markets, they're serving growing markets, they're they're offering products that their customers continue to use and want to use more of. Those are the, that's how we spend most of our time. How I spend most of my time, and I think most of the investors who work on our team spend their time thinking about. That doesn't mean it's not important. And when I look at, say, my 401k, which has a couple different funds in there, I do think about just the balance of those. I use that more as an opportunity to balance between maybe international or maybe um, different parts of the market, like I did shift into and add some small cap um, exposure into my 401k um, earlier this year or late last year, one of the time over the past 12 months, just to get some more exposure widely to small cap investing. Because again, most of the stocks that I was focused on studying or buying were more large cap companies, because that's that's where we have seen most of the opportunity. So, so I think from that perspective, you can use the balanced investing approach across different different vehicles, stocks, funds, uh, mutual funds, ETFs, to 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 diversify your portfolio, um, but on a stock by stock basis, still focus on those great businesses. So, what are you excited about uh, in the world of investing these days? What what has got you the most interested? 
Well, I think the continued shift of technology is really is is just really important. Uh, um, there are great tech focused companies out there. Um, I like to find companies that are really benefiting from technology that are utilizing technology even though they might be offering solutions that tend to not be technology driven. So not necessarily companies that are selling those tech services and in SaaS companies, software as a service or whatever it might be, but companies that are utilizing technology. I think that's a fun place to util- to, to, to focus. It still is mostly US. I still see most of the growth, even though valuations in the US are, are at, at, at relatively elevated levels, I still see the potential for sales and earnings growth. Um, to long term to be the the drivers of growth. So I still focus in in the U.S. markets, um, not so much on the fixed income market. Of course, I just think the the yield there is just going to be is going to be tough to find. Um, and certainly don't don't ignore dividends. If you can find some really those dividend paying companies that have the sustainable returns, you might not um, have outstanding outsized returns um, that you might own by some owning some more uh, aggressive growth companies. Um, but but it tends to temper down volatility. Studies show that that dividends tend to do temper down volatility. Or they're, a little, they're a little less volatile. Um, and you have some consistent cash flows coming in. Um, and that's the nice thing to have in your portfolio again when the markets going forward, I think, are just going to be far more volatile over the next 12 months than they were the last 12. So let's have our final question here. Our official purpose here at The Motley Fool is to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. So let's say you're named America's money czar. What's one thing you'd change about our financial system that would increase people's chances of becoming smarter, happier, and or richer? Oh, Robert, I, I, I really wrestle with this because I don't, I, don't, I don't like to mandate things too much, um, but I just think the, the, the teaching of... Foolish investing is is still so nascent, and there are so even though we have millions and millions of people coming to visit our website every day, and we have just um, loads of members that we're trying to serve. There are still just so many people who don't really understand foolish investing, and so when I'm trying to teach my daughters, I have two young daughters trying to teach them about investing. It's about businesses and it's about long-term perspective and owning lots of different um, businesses that over the next five, 10 years, they either they or others will continue to use more and more of and buying stocks. And oh, by the way, when you buy that stock, it really is a part, you are a part owner. So I hear my kids using terms now, oh, we are a part owner of Netflix. Oh, we are a part owner of Roblox. Like there's just little thinking around that. I want everybody to think like that, Robert. I want I don't care who you are. I want you to be able to understand that and think about that. So there's been so much great drive of investing interest and capital put in by individual investors over the last 12 months, which is fantastic. I want them to make sure they are investing the the, the right way, thinking about business investing the right way. So to answer your question, very long-winded, if I could mandate somehow foolish investing education, probably at the high school level or even earlier, maybe junior high, somehow start to have them understand business-focused investing and long-term perspective and how that is valuable. Oh, and by the way, to understand the volatility that comes with that, if we can start to, to package that, if I could wave my magic wand, that's what I would want to do. That sounds excellent. You have my vote, by the way. 
Well, thank you. If I'm running for <laughs> office, you will probably be the, you and my mom might be the only one. <laughs> and your daughters, of course. Uh, they, they're not old enough to vote yet. <laughs> so our guest today has been Andy Cross, the Chief Investment Officer here at The Motley Fool. Andy, thanks for joining us once again. Robert, Rick, thanks so much. It's been great. It's time for Answers, Answers. And this week's question comes from Ken. The guest on your August 31st episode said that claiming Social Security at age 67 or 68 maximizes lifetime benefits. Is that good advice for those near or at that age who aren't yet claiming without considering health status? Our advisors insist that I wait to 70 to claim based on the 8% increase for each year of delaying as they do with all of their clients who don't need the extra income for day-to-day expenses. This will also impact spousal survivor benefits if, like in our situation, one spouse made significantly more than the other while working. Am I missing something? Well, Ken, we got a few questions along these lines, so I thought we'd address this question. Uh, Our guest, just for those who don't remember, was Dr. Jeff Sansenbacher of the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College. And he was providing a very general number based on some studies that you could find on the center's website. Uh, But a lot of factors go into the decision of when to claim Social Security. One of the biggest is life expectancy. I mean, that's difficult to predict, of course, but for those with health issues that strongly suggest that they won't outlive the averages, then taking it sooner might make sense. However, for those with longer life expectancies, delaying might be the better option. And this includes women, people with college educations, people with above average wealth, all characteristics associated with living longer. Ken does bring up another important factor, and that is if you're married, when you claim could affect how much your spouse receives if you die first. It depends on the differential between the two spouses' lifetimes of earnings. Um, If they're close, it's not so important. But if, as in Ken's case, one spouse was the primary breadwinner, then it certainly makes sense for the primary breadwinner to delay, especially if it's likely that she or he will pass away first. The surviving spouse would then get the deceased spouse's benefit. Uh, one really one of the best ways to determine the best strategy for you is to use some online tools because they break your choices down to actual dollars based on your primary insurance amount, which is how much you'd receive at your full retirement age. The first step is to actually know your primary insurance amount, which you can get by signing up for a My Social Security account at Social Security's website. Once you have it, check out some tools. One free tool is OpenSocialSecurity.com, developed by Mike Piper, who's a CPA and a financial writer in St. Louis. Uh, that's free. Another is MaximizeMySocialSecurity.com. That costs $40. Uh, and it was co-developed by Larry Kotlikoff, an economics professor at Boston University. He's a bit of a character. He actually ran for president in 2016. Uh, but he's a smart dude, PhD from Harvard, regularly writes about Social Security. And then a third option is SocialSecurityAdvisors.com. costs $25 to $125, depending on whether you want to talk to an expert. For married couples, the results will often recommend that lower-earning spouse claims their benefits early, the higher-earning spouse delays to their late 60s or age 70, but your situation may be different. And it's important to remember that a tool can't accommodate all the factors, including whether someone just needs the money. And this brings me to an email from a listener who said that she's 63, had planned to delay to age 66, but her 70-year-old husband, very sadly, has been diagnosed with brain cancer, and they've been told that he has less than a year to live. She's asked whether she should take Social Security now because they need the money. And I think that probably makes sense because when her husband passes away, she'll receive his stepped up benefit. 
Uh, so really, this all leads me back to the advice that I regularly offer, and that is everyone who's within a few years of retirement should see a fee-only financial planner to make sure they have all their bases covered and they can incorporate all the non-financial factors into their plan because it's really not just all about the numbers. And the planner will have access to software that can determine the optimal Social Security claiming age. Which brings us back to Ken's question. If Ken has a qualified financial planner who he trusts, who has analyzed the situation and determined that 70 is his optimal claiming age, then he should probably go with it. I'll close here by highlighting one reason some people do claim early, and that is they're afraid Social Security is going to run out of money, so they, need, they feel like they need to get the benefits now while they can. The program's definitely in trouble. The Social Security trustees released their latest report a couple of weeks ago, and the date that the Social Security trust funds will be depleted has been moved up a year thanks to the COVID crisis. However, I don't think that's a reason to claim early for those who are in their 60s. I think the nearly and already retired are going to be fine. It's the rest of us, however, that probably need to count on reduced benefits. Like When I use a retirement calculator, I assume I'll get 50% to 75% of my currently protracted benefits. I hope I get 100%, but given the program's finances and the lack of political will to fix this while we can, I just don't think that's a safe assumption. Well, that's the show. It's edited securely by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Everybody.